Open up your Bibles, uh, Romans chapter 1. It's a tough week for me as I was uh, thinking about all this, and I knew that I was going to preach well before this, but being a procrastinator, um, that's actually not true. I had about 40 sermon outlines, and none of them felt right. Well, notice in the book of Romans is written by this man, Paul. And as I uh, stop and just think about this, and I think uh, about passages in the New Testament like um, Hebrews chapter 11, it becomes very clear to me that We need heroes in our lives. Heroes of the faith that have went on before us, that can aid us and um, make us more courageous and more consistent in our own pursuit after glory. We're not little islands. We can't do things on our own. God has built His church for His glory to to praise and worship Him, but He's also put us together as a body to strengthen and encourage one another, to build one another up in our faith. There's already been faithful men and women who have went on before us, and we stand on their shoulders. Think of Jesus who already laid the foundation and the apostles and moving on. I think of some personal examples of the, of the people that I just admire. I think of Charles Spurgeon, and a man so devoted to the Word of God, preaching very often. But the man was uh, not just a mere intellectual, he also had a heart for people. He planted his church in the worst part of London and shepherded mightily amongst the downcast, amongst drunkards and prostitutes, the worst of the worst in society. A man that was willing to take a stand as he saw the Baptist church falling apart and given in to liberalism and Here, the greatest Baptist of all time left the Baptist Union. I think of Martin Luther and a man who, in one sense, was willing to stand on one side and most of the world on the other side. A man who was willing to take a stand on the truth because he was standing with the Lord. He didn't cave to peer pressure or even threats on his life. He didn't care that he was called a heretic. He cared more about the applause and praise of God than the applause of people which fades with time. Think of a man like Jonathan Edwards. Probably the most brilliant mind we've ever seen in America. Encyclopedia Britannica called him that. And yet, here's this man with this great mind, a preacher amongst preachers, and given the most famous sermon ever preached in America, yet he spoke in a very plain way to the people of New England before America was even formed. A man that was willing to be kicked out of his pulpit because he believed as we do that communion should just only be for believers and he would not allow unprofessing unbelievers to take it. So he ministered for a long period of his life. Here he is, the most brilliant man speaking on the most elementary way 
to the Native Americans. What a humble man. Think of George Mueller. He would even call himself not that gifted, even though he was a good preacher. But he was most known for his work in in orphanages, caring, caring for the downcast. And unlike so many televangelists on TV, asking every second for money, he never asked for a dime. He was a man with calloused knees, man of prayer. You read his autobiography, you see how God provided time in and time out. Now think of a man like George Whitfield. We in America owe a lot to that man. Early in our mid-1700s, still being part of Britain, we were not a Christian nation. All kinds of debauchery was prevalent. Yet God took this man's heart, this intellectual man, And he began preaching in England. And not a lot of places would have him, so he went out into the open air. Quite a scandal in those days. And he went to the people that you would not expect to hear a Christian message. Coal miners. Rough men. Men that sin had a stranglehold on. I think of even one incident with those coal miners. About 20,000 people could hear him. man of a great voice. And he says as, as they were coming out of the mines, their, their faces blackened with the soot. As he was preaching, he started to see little white furrows on the men's faces. He's hard hard men were coming under the conviction of sin and crying and their tears were washing away that set. He made a promise to go to America and he had to keep it even though he was going around and probably established some seven to eight churches even though nobody met in buildings. He handed over his whole ministry in England to a man named John Wesley who up to that point nobody really cared for or would listen to. He went to America, started an orphanage in Georgia, went up and down the seaboard preaching the gospel. It was said of him that more people could recognize him because so many people came out to hear him preach that more people could recognize him than even George Washington. In fact, he was so, as he made, I believe, seven round-trip voyages from over the Atlantic to England to America. His last time in America, frail, weak, sick, he gives a sermon that night, being very, very sick, He rides in his carriage to the place he was staying, and yet the people followed him. At about 10 o'clock at night, they convinced him to preach again. Knowing that he was called to proclaim the gospel of God, he proclaims it. It's the last sermon he ever preached. It ended up killing him. There was a man who cared more about the glory of God than even his own life. Is it just me? But 
but I desire to live like those men. I want to make my life count for something. I don't want to waste it. The older I get, the, the fewer years that I see that I have. Yet if you're really to, to press me on the issue and say, who do you want to be like? Anybody but Jesus Christ, because definitely I want to be like him most of all. But any other man besides Jesus Christ, who do you want to be like? And my answer unequivocally would be the Apostle Paul. man that persecuted the church, a man who was in one way trying to stamp out the way, Christianity, a man who was zealous in his sin. Yet by the grace of God, God got a hold of Paul's heart and he becomes the greatest evangelist, the greatest pastor, the greatest church planner. We owe much to him. He wrote half of the New Testament. He was a man who was the greatest intellectual, but he lowers himself, becoming all things to all people. A man who could say, in one of the greatest minds, that he became a fool for Christ's sake. A man of integrity, as I look through the scriptures and study his life after his conversion, I can't find one single fault with the man, yet in his humility, he could actually say, I am the chief of sinners. A man with humility who could say to the church at Corinth, imitate me as I imitate Christ. It's my prayer that you too greatly desire to imitate our brother Paul as he imitated Christ. May God give us the grace that is needed to do that. This morning I want us to look at Paul. And I want you to look at it in the lens of this. How did the gospel, the glorious gospel of God's grace, how did that affect the heart of Paul? How did it affect his soul? And if it affected his soul in that way, should it not be said of us that it should affect our souls in a similar way? We will note three effects of the gospel on Paul from Romans chapter 1 verses 14 through 17. The word of the Lord reads, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, help us. We come as a a desperate people. Lord, I even think of the words that we have declared to you even this morning. We are prone to wonder. Without your abiding grace in our hearts, Lord, without your correction, we would all go our own ways. We need help, Father. May we look to Paul.
but even more than to just look to Paul, your servant, a faithful man and minister of the gospel, Lord, may we look to you, the God of Paul, the one who initiated this change in Paul, the one who affected his life. And Lord, may we be real with you this morning. May we look at even our own hearts as you see them. May we see the areas where we have uh, strove and succeeded and give you the praise for that, knowing, Lord, that it is you who began a good work. It is you that will complete it, that you'll finish it. Yet, Lord, we have nothing to boast of yet. We are not glorified. We still struggle with sin. I believe there's still areas here that I can just speak for myself that I know I struggle with greatly. You know, Lord, I, in one sense, did not want to even be up here this morning or even preach from this passage. It's a mountaintop verse. Father, give us the grace that's needed. May we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Lord, we are debtors. We are debtors to your grace. Help us to see you a little more clearly this morning. May this not be just a mere intellectual exercise, Lord. Speak to our souls. For your own name's sake. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So I stated before, the gospel had three effects on Paul, as seen in these verses. Each one of these effects is seen in what I'm going to call the I am statements of Paul. It's the three I am statements of Paul. It's going to clearly show us what happened in the heart of Paul. Look at verse 14. Paul was under obligation. He says, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. This word obligation is translated in some Bible um, versions as debtor. And really, the Greek word does mean that. Someone who owes money or something to somebody else. That's how Paul first saw himself as. As one who had received the gospel, he is a debtor. Paul owes something. Paul is under the necessity. He's under obligation. Well, the question would come, who is Paul a debtor to? Who is Paul a debtor to? And it's very clearly, easily seen in the text, he's a debtor. He's under obligation to the Greeks and the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. But I think it goes even more than that. Paul is both a debtor to mankind, but he's also a debtor to God. Let me illustrate this by an example. Let's say since I um, work with Aaron, I gave him $100 to give to his dad. It's a gift. I'm giving it. Now, I give Aaron the $100 and he takes it. At that point, he's a debtor. He's a debtor to me. He's under obligation to give that money to his father. He's also a debtor to his father. That's his father's money. It's Bruce's money. And as receiving the gift, he's a debtor to both the giver of the gift and who he's actually supposed to deliver the gift to. That's Paul. He's received this gift from God. This amazing gift of the grace of God. The Word of God. Until he gives the Word. Until he finishes his ministry. He owes both God and man. To 
Turn to 1 Corinthians 9.16. This is the heart of what's going on here with Paul. A debtor to both God and man. Here Paul, in one sense, is surrendering his rights. He could have been asking for money as a preacher of the gospel to support his lifestyle, yet he supported his ministry by actually going out and work, and then beyond that, preaching the gospel to people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 16, the word of the Lord reads, For I preach the gospel... For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. The necessity of God upon his life. He had placed him in this charge as both an apostle to the Gentiles. He has a message to deliver. And if he doesn't do it, Paul says, I am cursed. I should be damned to hell. Woe is me. Look in the Old Testament, and whenever a prophet got bad news from God, it was usually put out with these words of woe. Here's a man under the chains of the gospel. Woe is me if I do not preach about Jesus Christ. God becoming a man. Humbling himself. Living the perfect life that I couldn't live because I'm a sinner. Going to the cross. Paying the penalty for my sins, propitiating God's wrath and receiving and giving to me His righteousness so I could stand before the Father absolved of all my sins. And He proved that He did that because He rose from the dead. Paul says, woe is me if I do not preach that. Sure, I could say it later on, but it just feels like the point right now. Do we feel like we are under that obligation? I know a lot of times, I know a lot, a lot of times, we put that off. I know I do. I ask God, oh, please open up doors for me. Older I get in the faith, I think that is just a worthless prayer. Uh, there's neighbors. There's the person who's going to serve you fast food after this. There's the person that you run to by on the street. There's your coworkers. There's your friends. There's the person that's just passing by. And I think the real issue is, my brothers and sisters, is we get way too caught up in the physical. That's what we can see and touch and hear and feel. And we don't see the spiritual aspect of man. They have a soul. If we only knew of the amount of people every day, just even in Modesto, just this one little place in the world who will die without Jesus in the terrors of hell, I don't think we'd even be able to sleep at night. Do we say, woe is me? I preach not the gospel. Do we consider ourselves under obligation, a debtor to both God and man?
think about this. I think, first of all, as a debtor, this implies some things. It implies, first of all, that Paul has something that he's able to give. Paul is the person, he possesses something that he can give. When you uh, acquire debt, the mortgage company is going to say, well, you have something to give. You have a job. You can make your mortgage payments. Paul, receiving the gospel, has something to give. We see that even in Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Even well before what he says here in chapter 1, verse 14, he says, For I long to see you. I long to see you, Romans. Why? That I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we would be mutually encouraged. He longed to see him so that he could impart, so that he could give. And I think here what is true of Paul is true for all Christians. Actually, it's a great definition of a Christian. A Christian possesses the gospel of grace. A Christian is someone who possesses something and is able to give it to another. How can we be a Christian without knowing why we are a Christian? How can we believe in without which we do not know? We possess, as believers of God, something which we can give. Now that infers knowledge. You know the gospel. You believed it so you can share it. Peter encourages us to do this in 1 Peter 3.15 when he says, In your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Well, how are we going to do that, Peter? Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. How do we honor Christ as the Lord? By proclaiming this knowledge to give a reason for the hope that is in us. Let me give us an illustration, hopefully as a test for us. Who knows, that could be an ambulance right there. Think about that. You heard the sirens. What if you get home right now after the service? You got a flashing red light on your answering machine. I think that's strange. Usually people call me on my cell phone. I don't even know if they have answering machines anymore. (laughs) You pick it up. It's a call from your neighbor's wife. Your neighbor, he was feeling bad this morning. He goes to the doctor. They run him in for some tests. Tests. And it's bad. Very bad. They call in another doctor and a second opinion, and they're both agreed. The neighbor doesn't have till even nightfall to live. This man's not a Christian. He's had some dealings with you, but you know that he's not a Christian. He's not saved. He's just doing the normal things that non-Christians do. We know what that is. But now he's terrified. He's scared. He's looking death in the face. This man who never had a a longing to hear about the gospel, uh, but knows that you're a Christian. And in his desperation... Knowing that you're a Christian, he calls you. Now, I would say right now we're under obligation. What, you're going to tell a dying man no? So you go into the hospital. He's barely hanging on to life. The test is this do you have something to impart to this man? 
Do you have something you can give him that will help his troubled soul? That's the test. Notice morality will not do. What are you going to say to the guy? That will only add to his anxiety. Well, if you only lived a moral life, you know, now if being in your situation, you wouldn't think this such a bad deal. You're a good person. He's dying. He can't live a moral life. That's like rubbing salt in the wound. Only the gospel can give him hope. It's the breath of life to a dying man. Not only does this imply a knowledge, being able to give something, it implies knowledge. I think it also implies experience. This isn't something just theoretical in our heads. It's practical. It's lived out in our lives. You know the power of the gospel in your own life. You have a testimony of the gospel in your own life to give to the person, to impart to others. Now clearly, as under obligation, as a debtor, the ability to impart the gospel presupposes both this knowledge and practical experience, living it out. Now, Paul was definitely in that position. He had the knowledge. He was living it out. May I say with the most gentleness that I can possibly have, are we all in that position? Do you know whom you have believed? Are you able to give a reason for the hope that is in you? Have you lost the fear of death in the grave? Are you ready to meet God? Secondly, I think that's also implied here as a man under obligation, Paul was able to give the gospel to everybody. It's one thing to have it, It's another thing to be able to pass it on to others. Notice what he says in verse 14 in Romans chapter 1. He says, I'm under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Greeks and the barbarians. Another way you could say this is the whole world. You are either in Greek culture influenced by that philosophy, or you were under barbarian, uncultured people. The Romans were Greeks. Why? Because at that time, Greek philosophy, Greek culture, had invaded Rome. Although Rome, in a political sense, had conquered Greece, in a philosophical, social sense, Greek won the Greece won the war on Rome. Paul is saying here it isn't that he is able to impart the knowledge of the gospel to both men and women of all nationalities. And he also goes on further with another classification of both to the wise and to the foolish. We can either classify people or mankind by nationality, and we can also classify people by their abilities or lack of abilities, their understanding or lack of understanding. Again, Paul is saying both wise and foolish. These are ways of saying everybody. I can give the gospel to everybody. Now, this could be, Paul could be addressing this from a just mere spiritual aspect. Who are the wise spiritually? Believers in Christ. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 The foolish would be the unsaved, the unregenerate, the fool 
says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 53.1. He also may just be putting this out there as a mere intellectual thing. The wise, the learned, the cultured, the educated, the professors, the fool, the uncultured, uneducated, working class at that day, slaves and servants of others. I say to us, if we can't preach the gospel, if we have to have a certain type of person that we can communicate the gospel to and that's it, then I doubt if we can preach the gospel to anybody. I really doubt it. Think about Paul. He was able to do this. He was able to go and proclaim the gospel to the Stoics, the Epicureans, the philosophers on Mars Hill, the highly educated men in Athens. Yet at the same time, he could go and under chains of imprisonment, go and proclaim the gospel to the servants, the slaves in Caesar's household, and do both effectively. We have this poor sense in the it's even in this way of education and that we got to change the message and tone it down based on the person. I just say we got to say the same truths but we might have to use a little bit different language at times. I mean, honestly, when looking at this, here is Paul. He's under obligation to the whole world. He's under obligation to God. And honestly, I'm going to say this again with as much gentleness as I can. Doesn't this destroy this thought of lifestyle evangelism? Well, I'm going to um, befriend people. And after building a relationship with them, then I'll share the gospel with them. i got to know them first. got to be able to walk in their shoes. Then I can be effective. I think you, if you actually take that to its logical end, it's absolutely um, stupid on two grounds. Would you be willing to say then to effectively know and to speak the truth of God to a drunkard? You have to get sauced for about six months so you can understand them. Are you saying that you're God and you know when that individual is going to die? And so you're going to put off sharing the gospel with them like you know when they're going to depart out of this world? Do you not feel yourself to be a debtor to that man's soul? Do you not feel yourself like Ezekiel who says that he was a watchman? He got a message from God and then had to warn the people. And if he didn't do that, their blood would be on his hands. My friends, we are debtors. All who name the name of the Lord Jesus is a debtor to grace, a debtor to God, and a debtor to mankind. Secondly, look at verse 15. We'll get to the second I am statement, the second glorious truth on how the gospel impacted Paul. First of all, he saw himself as a debtor, a man who was compelled under obligation. And secondly, we see this. The word of the Lord reads, So I am eager 
to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul was eager. Eager. It wasn't like he was just under obligation. He most definitely was that. But it's not just done out of mere duty's sake. You know this growing up. There are some things you did just out of duty with no heart in it. Your mom and dad tell you to take out the trash. Out of duty you do it, but is your heart there to actually say, yes, thank you, I want to honor you. This is the passion of Paul. This is the overflowing of grace working itself in Paul's heart. His desire was aching to proclaim the gospel. It was not just mere duty. He wasn't like Jonah. You remember the story of Jonah? He receives the word of the Lord concerning Nineveh. And instead of going there, he flees the opposite direction. Thrown into the sea, the Lord saves him. Then after God sparing his life, he goes into the town of Nineveh and he preaches the message God tells him to proclaim. That the city would be destroyed Then we get to the sad part of the book. It's the final chapter. The people repented and God forgave because He's a forgiving and loving God. The Ninevites were probably some of the most ruthless, evil people this world has ever known. He wanted them utterly eradicated. And here we see the prophet of God sitting outside this city, waiting and hoping God would destroy it. Not caring that there were many, many, many young children in there that didn't even know their left hand from the right. He did it out of mere duty. No heart. Paul was not like that. Sure, and later on, the stoning of Stephen broke Paul's heart. Sure, that was a big motivator. Out of a heart of love to totally give himself into this ministry, out of the heart of desire and love for people, knowing that he himself did things that were so awful. Paul's desire was to see the saved, strengthened, and equipped with the gospel and the lost to come to a saving knowledge of the truth and the gospel of Christ. Let me ask us all this, and I need to ask myself that too. Is it the greatest passion of our hearts to see the lost safe? Or is there some other affection that is greater than that in our hearts? Where are our affections? What has captured our heart? Have you not read Hebrews 12, 2, where it says that for the joy set before Him, Christ endured the cross. Have we not read the parables of Luke 15 where the parable of the lost 
sheep and the lost coin and the prodigal son. Something was lost. Sinners was lost. God sought them and saved them. They were found and there was great joy in heaven over the salvation of one sinner who repents. What gives us joy? If you're anything like me, I'm sure you are. I am most guilty on this matter. I fall short. I am so selfish. You want to know how messed up I am? I was even ticked off when we were having some great worship time because Come Thou Fount was a newer version of it than the old classical version. You stinking kidding me? Oh, how my affections could be so off track. I also want you to notice something in this verse, verse 15. You read through it. I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. I also want you to look at the word also. This implies something. It implies that Paul was already preaching the gospel and was already in the ministry. He was eagerly doing it already. And he's like, I'm doing it now. I also want to do it to you guys. I also want to proclaim it in Rome. He's faithful. He was preaching the gospel. He's proclaiming the truths of Jesus presently when, where he was at. When free, Paul endured great hardships, great persecutions, overcame great things to proclaim the gospel, to plant churches, to disciple believers in the full counsel of God. When in prison, Paul preached the gospel to those around him, to the household of Caesar, to jailers, to governors, to judges, to councils. Whether a free man or a prisoner, ultimately he was a prisoner of the Lord. His heart was in proclaiming the message of God because the gospel was the center of Paul's soul. The test is quite simple, and I think we'd all get an F on it. I know I do. I'm probably down in the F minus zone. There is such a thing. How many people did you share the news about Jesus with yesterday? Last week? Last month? Was it everybody you met? You're like me, my guilt is great in this matter. Oh, let us confess our transgressions before the Lord. Let us ask that the Lord would remove the hardness of our selfishness, of our hearts, and to give us an abiding love for sinners, to increase our love for others, to see them as being us being under debt to them, and to give us a love to want to proclaim the truth the glorious truths about Jesus. Look, we're a new church. Quite frankly, I don't want to see another person in here unless God brings them in who's a member of another church. I want them to stay at their own churches. I want them to be with people who already love them and are counseling them and know their lives. If they're preaching heresy there, then yeah, we'll accept them. 
I want to see people who are lost be saved here. I want to see people with that zeal of just knowing the Lord and that joy that is so overflowing here amongst them. So our stagnation will be lifted. I want to be able to look to them and praise God as the God who saves. Not just saying, you are a God who saved, past tense. No, you are saving. My friends, that only happens if we go out, see ourselves as debtors to others, and have a heart for the souls of people to share, to impart what we have. This brings us to our last point. We've seen, first of all, that Paul was under obligation. We see, secondly, he was uh, desirous. He, was, uh, uh, he had the affections to proclaim the gospel. And we see, third of all, here in verse 16 and 17, that he was not ashamed of the gospel. He writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. Paul gloried in the gospel. He received the ultimate gift of the grace of God. And therefore, he was unashamed to impart that to others. It is the ultimate gift. Let me ask you this. If you won the lottery today, would you be ashamed of that? Would you not tell a single other soul of that? And yet, everything on this world, anything that money will buy, we cannot take it with us past the grave. It will all one day burn. You will die, and you can try to manage that great gift, and guess what? It's going to be passed on to somebody else, and who knows if they're going to do a good job with it. We receive something great. I think it's just naturally in us to desire to share that with others. We can't hold it in. And yet Paul understood something. He understood that in proclaiming this gospel, the truths of Jesus, some are going to hate that message. Some are going to despise the message. Some are going to reject the message and by implications reject Paul. His own countrymen hated him. Many of the Gentiles hated him when his message of the gospel starts to disrupt their business practices in the makings of idols. And so there's always this temptation. There's the temptation to tone it down. There's the temptation not to give the full message. Just share some things that people like to hear. Hey, Jesus loves you. Has a wonderful plan for your life. And somehow, if you believe on the cross, somehow that does something and you're good. He's going to get offended at that. Yet that is not the gospel. Where's the wretched need of us as a sinner before a holy God? Have you ever wondered this and think about it? Why is it today in evangelical churches... And I think you've seen this. The majority of people who are in them are women. It's not true here, praise the Lord. But the ones who are actually serious in the families are the women. The ones who are staying home watching football are usually the guys. Why is that? I submit to you, I think it's this. We haven't proclaimed the full gospel of God. We've changed the message. 
We've toned it down. We're guys. You go to a man and you start using psychology and you start using some things to try to influence them and all of a sudden there's going to be a brick wall thrown up. They won't want to hear it. Talk to a man and you say something rough. Something that hurts. Even though they hate hearing it, they know the truth of it. It hurts, the, and they know it's true, even though it's hard to listen to. It's not just mere sentimentality. It's the truth. I think we've taken that out of the message, the hard-hitting aspect of the gospel. It's like the gospel punches you in the gut and then kisses you on the face to make it better. So it, it appeals both to the men and to the more affectionate women. And if we only preach one half of it, no wonder our evangelism is so one-sided. That's just my opinion. A lot of other things in here are not my opinion. You can just take that and do with it as you will. Put it under prayerful consideration. Paul overcame this temptation, getting back to the notes. The to- uh, he overcame the temptation to tone down the message, to make it more palatable, to remove the offense. He's unashamed. He's going to proclaim the full gospel and all its intricacies to all people. Why was Paul unashamed? Why, why, why? From this text, I can see seven reasons. And they'll all start with the letter S. But notice that they are found here in verses 16 and 17. First of all, Paul was not ashamed because, number one, of the strength of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation. The omnipotence of God is in the message. The same power that was in the words of God to speak the universe into existence is the same power is in this message that take a heart of stone to remove it and give us a heart of flesh. In fact, the, the, the power God exercised in creation is nothing compared to taking something that is utterly corrupt and defiled and nasty in his sight and to make it into something pure. Can a leopard change its spots? No. God literally does a miracle. It's one thing to create something from nothing. That's spectacular. But to take something utterly bad and make it into something good, it's mind-boggling. Power of the gospel. The, the strength of the gospel. That's why he's not ashamed. Literally, the Greek word there for power, and we get the word dynamite from it. It's the dynamite of God. Secondly, The scope of the gospel, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. To the Greek and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish, to the Jews and the Gentiles, to the religious and lost, or the very depraved and lost. The scope of the gospel is everyone. Since we are all under sin, we're all under God's judgment, the gospel's for us all. It's the only thing that can save. I don't know about you, but isn't that just wonderful? There's some places in this world I can't go. I won't be allowed I can knock on the door, they'll look at me. Have a reservation? No. Get out. Get out of here. 
they'd probably take one look at me and say that. You don't even ask me for a reservation, see if I have one. Just can't go there. Not allowed. The scope of that place is narrow. Isn't it glorious that God is not a respecter of persons? That he freely gives. Oh, may we not think of heaven in that way. Like we'll see the ultra holy before the throne of God and then maybe somewhere way in the back will be me. It's there we're all on equal ground. All a sinner saved by grace. The scope of the gospel is for everyone who believes. It's for you, my friend. It's for you and for me. The strength of the gospel, the scope of the gospel. Number three, the simplicity of the gospel. Verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, it is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. It's a simplistic message. Everybody may receive this gospel. Everyone can receive it. And it's simple. It's by faith. Many times in the Testament, it just looks... uh, Let me restate that. Many times in the Bible, all it says that we're to do is to look unto Jesus. Those of you who've been around little kids, it doesn't take much for them to look. Any young one can look. To fix your eyes upon. To behold by faith. It's a simple thing. God has already done all the work in His Son. We don't have to work and do it ourselves. We must just fall down and trust in the work of Christ. Everything else in this world we have to work for. Isn't it great to have something you can just trust and that's it? Something that's already been done for you by simple faith. Trust in Christ. Four, not just strength, not just the scope, not just the simplicity, for the splendor of the gospel is something that made the gospel, Paul unashamed of the gospel, the splendor of the gospel. Look in verse 17. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of, of God is revealed. The splendor of the gospel (laughs) struck the heart of Paul. The splendor of the gospel is centered around the cross of Jesus. Because it's there on the cross we see the attributes of God in brilliant display. We see His wrath and His holiness and His hatred for sin the Father crushes the Son. We see God's power in crushing Him. But do we not see grace? Do we not see the God of peace there as well? Opening up the doorway, tearing the veil, The splendor of the gospel spoke to Paul. Moving on, since I'm almost out of time. The source of the gospel. Notice in verse 17 that it is the righteousness of God. As Martin Luther put it, this righteousness was an alien righteousness, a foreign righteousness. It is God's righteousness given to us and Paul gloried in that. He wasn't ashamed of God's righteousness. You know the verse, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. 
The source of the gospel is God in His imputed righteousness. Six, the security of the gospel. Look also in verse 17. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or from faith to faith. We start with faith, we grow in faith, we'll die in faith. Start to finish the Christian life as that of faith. And since it is God who gave us the faith to believe, and we know that from 2 Corinthians chapter eight, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, God's going to bring that unto completion. There's a security in the gospel. Notice everything else in this life there is no security in. You might lose your job this week. If you're self-employed, you might not get any more work. You might lose your house if you still owe. You might lose your husband or wife or child. You might lose your own life. We are but mere dust. We are but a breath. There's no security in ourselves. And yet in the gospel, there is this security that he who began a good work in you will bring it unto completion in the day of Christ Jesus. I long for that security. It's only found there in one place, in the gospel of Christ and the God of the gospel. And lastly, the supremacy of the gospel. Paul sums up this whole section by quoting from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous shall live by faith. From quoting from the Old Testament, Paul is showing that the gospel is supreme. It is never has changed. Saints in the Old Testament were saved by grace through faith. Not by this ridiculous concept that they kept the law or that they were under the covenant of works. That they were good enough and God says, well, welcome into my kingdom. If that was allowable then, then why would God the Father send His Son to die if there's, an only other, when there's another way? He'd be a horrible father. And unworthy of our praise if there was another way that we could get in by our own righteousness and our own keeping of the law. The supremacy of the gospel that it is the unchanging, eternal gospel. The eternal gospel of grace. It is supreme. In conclusion, we've covered three things and we must ask ourselves, how are we doing imitating Paul? Do you act as a debtor to all mankind? Are you eager to impart the gospel? Are you unashamed of the gospel of the Son of God? May the Lord grow us at Redemption Hill in these areas. Let's pray.